Welcome to the Investor Gains podcast. My name is Mark James. Best part of my role here is the people and the companies that I have the privilege to get to meet. In this series, I'm in discussion with a variety of the CEOs, founders, other stakeholders I've got to know over the years in the game sector. Uh, in particular, I'm quite keen to delve into their backstories. So join us as we find out how they got into games, as well as obviously their view on the current outlook for the sector. This week, I'm joined by Sir Ian Livingstone, CBE. He's one of the founding fathers of the, the UK games industry. He co-founded Games Workshop in 1975, exiting in, in 1991. Before embarking on what I think is a remarkable career in the video games industry, he, along the way, he's written multiple games books. I've written down here, his first one sold 21 million copies worldwide, and he's written another 17 since then. Uh, in 95, he co-led the merger, which created Aidos, which launched Lara Croft. Uh, and, and, you know, the list goes on. He's an angel investor. He's been involved with Golf Clash um, developers, Playdemic, uh, with Fall Guys developers, Mediatonic. He was chairman of Sumo Group before it sailed to Tencent, and is currently a general partner in Hero Capital. And it's a long, long list, and I think you'd far rather hear it from uh, Sir Ian himself rather than me. So look, thanks for joining us. A pleasure. I wonder, it, it is such a, a, a long career, you know, you, in my in my head, you sort of kick-started the games industry. Perhaps we could start with the Games Workshop days. I know you and I have discussed this in the past, but could, can you talk a little bit about how that came to pass? Sure. I am a games player at school, played Monopoly and chess for the school and um, met Steve Jackson there and also John Peake, and the three of us went our separate ways, and we met up back in London. Lived in a flat in Shepherd's Bush, and not had pretty boring, low-paid jobs, and um, still had our passion for playing games, and we thought, could we not somehow turn this hobby of ours into some sort of fledgling business? So we decided to write a newsletter, uh, which we sent out to everybody in new, new in games. That newsletter was called Alan Weasel, and um, one of the copies of it somehow miraculously fell on the desk of Gary Gygax in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And he wrote to us and said, love your magazine. Here's this new game I've just devised. What do you think? And that game was Dungeons and Dragons. And it didn't look much. A kind of white box with a very average drawing on the front. But when you open that box, it opened up your imagination like no game had ever done before. And I don't think any game ever will again. Or It was a, the very first role-playing game whereby players took on the roles of heroes and wizards and clerics and goes on these fantastic journeys of the mind, exploring the dungeons created by the dungeon master. And that sort of attachment and theatre on the fly and kind of social fun in a fantasy world was a very compelling experience. So we ordered six copies of D&D, and on the back of that mighty order, we got an exclusive distribution agreement for the whole of Europe. And uh, That's hilarious. <laughs> that's how it started, because Gary was also operating out of a flat in Lake Geneva, and he'd only printed like a thousand copies of D&D. So he was delighted to have a Euro distrib European distributor, even though we only ordered initially six copies. Um what happened next is that we started sending it mail order through our magazine, Alan Weasel, and we called the company Games Workshop um, because originally John, the third partner of Workshop then, was a great craftsman and made traditional board games, which I also sold to. So the game shops around, uh, around London in particular. And we used to see people milling around on the street downstairs looking for this shop. Of course, there wasn't one. We used to open up the window. You're looking for games workshop? Up here, mate. We used to come up. 
and see this absolute <laughs> slum of a living room filled with boxes and cardboard boxes and but still walk away very happy with their copy of D&D. We didn't have a phone in the flat, um, obviously before mobile phones in the 70s, but there was a public pay phone on the ground floor, which we shared with our landlord, and it was always ringing for a telephone purchase of D&D, and we, the phone would ring, we'd race down the stairs, always too late. Our landlord had <laughs> a few drinks on a Friday, would be there first, and and say, oh, you want games workshop, do you? Well, you can go to hell and just hang up on people. And <laughs> people even more determined to find it. Anyway, fast forward to 1976. Um, Steve and I said we want to go full time. Uh, John decided he wanted to leave at that point. He didn't really like role playing games. He wanted to carry on with his career as a civil engineer. Steve and I went to the States. We met all the fledgling games companies. Um, met Gary Gygax and this this really growing role-playing and board games community and we'd given up our flat we had no money came back to the UK we'd ordered loads of games which were posted to my girlfriend at the time and uh, <laughs> we, um, we went into the bank manager and uh, said uh, we've got this great game it's called Dungeon Dragon it's a role-playing game where you kill monsters and find treasure and you go these fantastic gears of the mind and the bank manager looked like a it's a bit like a dog watching television had no understanding whatsoever and asked us to leave so we didn't get our bank loan which we were quite annoyed about at the time but looking back now now i know what i know you could understand why all we had was our passion and enthusiasm we didn't have any investment memorandum or cash flows or projections or p l we were just desperate that everyone would recognize that dungeon dragons had an incredible future ahead of it so we found a small office in Shepherd's Bush, the size of a bread bin at the back of an estate agent's where we ran our fledgling mail order business and we had to sleep in a Steve's van outside the office and join the local squash club nearby um, for a shave and a shower in the morning. So it's a very hand-to-mouth operation for the first couple of years. But then we started White Dwarf magazine and we opened our first retail store in 1978 and that's when Games Workshop really kicked off. Was this, can I ask, was that... Is this all driven by a passion for the games itself or just a belief that in time everybody would, you know, that, that, that there was a shared pass, uh, passion, you could make money out of it? Was it a vocation or did you just think, actually, do you know what, we're really onto something here? Or a bit of both? Absolute passion because we were so, I mean, you know, we lived in a van in, in December. Exactly. <laughs> with the rain coming down yeah. on the roof. We weren't thinking about we're going to make loads of money at that point. I mean, yeah. money. I mean, if you're driven by passion, you know, so you're likely to be more successful. And of course, a byproduct yeah. of this is money, and and all that comes with that yeah. eventually. But for me, that's never been the motivation. You know, I love the games industry. That's why I'm still in it after nearly 50 yeah. years. Totally. And um, I recall back to the shop. I recall a photograph you showed me ages ago of people queuing around the block. Was that this, this shop we're talking about? The first shop. Yes, in, in uh, Daly Road in Hammersmith, West London. And we had no idea what the reception would be like. We'd promoted as much as we could, could through through um, White Wharf. But when we got there for the opening, um, we were about two hours ahead of the opening time. There was a huge queue all the way around the building of people desperate to find what was the only specialist game shop in London around um, science fiction and fantasy games. Can I ask, you know, look, right now, there's global enthusiasm for uh, games. 
it, it, I just hearing you talk about the bank manager. Am I right in thinking that then there's a, there's a little bit of a that uh, the establishment was a little bit anti the, the sort of burgeoning game sector? I, I seem to recall you talking in the past to me about a, a, an element of sort of distrust, and it's interesting you you talking about the bank manager's reaction. I think in those days there was certainly a distrust around games, particularly fantasy games, and even more so around our Fighting Fantasy game books, which, were, which we wrote in the, in the early 18, in the in early 1980s, and around Dungeons and Dragons as well, in particular, um, what was called the Satanic Panic. People thought people were going to become, you know, overtaken by the devil if they immersed themselves in fantasy worlds, even though they were just playing in a world where ghouls and demons might exist and vampires. And somehow they thought that people would get possessed by the devil. I mean, when we wrote Fighting Fancy Game Boys, the first one was The Warlock of Firetop Mountain. Um, there was an eight-page warning guide published about them by the Evangelical Alliance saying that very thing, that you would get possessed if you, you read these books. The local vicar near Penguin Books threatened to chain himself to the railings until they were banned. There were petitions sent in from worried parents. There were magazine articles saying that children are using their imaginations too much. I mean, God forbid children use their imaginations. <laughs> and but of course, at the same time, parents and only teachers and some parents were realizing that Final Fantasy game books and Dungeons and Dragons were enabling people to learn. They were encouraging reading. They were uh, a con contextual hub for learning. They were improving critical thinking, uh, algorithmic thinking and and encouraging creative writing because the Final Fantasy game books were they were interactive. They gave the reader agency of being in control of the event of the adventure. It wasn't a passive experience. And that got a whole generation. I mean, you said before the first book sold 21 million copies. Actually, the, the whole series sold 21 million copies. I wish it weren't the first one, but so that did sell well over a million copies. And yet it never got any kind of much positive um, recognition in mainstream media because it were, they weren't considered a proper book because it had that word game in them, game book, because it was a branching narrative with a game system attached to it. And so people have always been suspicious of games. Even in the 1850s, Scientific American wrote this article about how chess, um, shouldn't, people shouldn't waste their time playing chess, you should do much nobler things with their, with their time and their mind than they engage in this kind of trivial occupation of playing game like chess, which is crazy because games are proven to be really good for you in terms of 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 problem solving, intuitive learning, strategizing. And when it comes to video games, games like Minecraft, where a child can learn contextually by applying the heat of a furnace to silica sand, they create glass and they take that glass and put it in their environments. Yeah. So, yeah, Minecraft is like digital Lego. It's a construction. It's digital making, and it's yeah. learning by doing. And games yeah. like roller coaster, roller coaster tycoon, where you're learning about the physics of building the rides, the the economy of staffing the rides, um, and how you it's effectively a management simulation. And if you're not punished for making a mistake, you tweak the parameters, and ultimately everyone can be a winner over time. So it's not like the pressure of an exam. You have one moment to get it right or you're judged less able if you get it wrong. 
games allow everyone to be victorious in the end. There's so much good about games that people just never talk about, from role-playing games to our interactive game books to video games. So it's not just the economic impact of of games, it's the whole social and cultural impact that is front and centre of today's uh, society. And I know education is very important to you, and we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll come on to that. So in, in my intro, I, I, I unfairly glossed over this fantastic and long career with multiple legs to it in the games industry. So you, you'd, you'd founded Games Workshop. It, it obviously grew and grew with your passion and your drive and everybody else's enthusiasm, growing enthusiasm for the games sector. But in, I think it's early 90s, you, you sold that business. Yeah, and I'm curious as to you know sort of what happened next, if you like. Was it that you were you writing these games books along the way? Did you start sit down and write them after you'd sold the business? Uh, I, I'm just trying to understand. I'm sure things didn't move in a straight line, and I'm just trying to understand a little bit more about the evolution from Games Workshop to some of the other things you went on to do. Well, I, I, I talk about this in a, a book I published last year called Dice Man, which is the origin story of Games Workshop, and um, it's been really well received. And um, so the full story is there if anyone wants to know more. But sure. really what happened was um, we had this exclusive distribution agreement for Dungeons & Dragons, and, and at the end of which, in 1979, Gary Gygax came over to see us and said he wanted to merge the two companies, his company, TSR, and Games Workshop. And being independent young Brits, we weren't keen on that idea. We also weren't keen on spending six months of the year in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And so we said, no's that opportunity. And so we suddenly lost exclusivity on D&D and realized we had to um, fill a gap so whilst we remained the largest distributor for many years because our customers were coming to us not just for D&D but also for the, all the other role-playing games and and miniatures and magazines that we were offering uh, in on wholesale terms, um, we had to find something to replace D&D as our marquee title. So we published a number of our own board games but it wasn't until Warhammer came along there, there was a sudden change uh, in 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 workshops performance now i can't claim to have invented warhammer that was done by rick Priestley, richard halliwell and brian ansell who was the managing director of citadel miniatures our wholly owned subsidiary in in nottingham making the little miniatures that people used and painted right. in in the games and the first warhammer came out in 1983 and of course that evolved very quickly due to demand and ultimately warhammer 40k Warhammer 40,000, if you want to call its full name, came out uh, a few years later and was became an enormous success over time. And in fact, that's what ind- underpins the value of, of Workshop today. But fast forward then to 1985, uh, 86, we were now international best-selling authors. That's Steve Jackson, my business partner at Workshop whilst trying to run Games Workshop during the day and writing Finding Fantasy books at night yeah. because Penguin demanding more and more and more. Uh, the foreign rights being done, they were translating into 25 languages. So that was an enormous strain uh, trying to do Games Workshop, yes. which is growing hugely now because of Warhammer and and write Finding Fantasy game books in the evening to like two o'clock in the morning. That's something I had to give. So we appointed Brian Ansell, group director, and we moved the HQ of Workshop up to Nottingham, so it's all housed under one roof. So Workshop Games, Citadel Miniatures, and White Dwarf Magazine. 
and that worked well and so we we had less day-to-day uh, involvement in in workshop as it was now headquartered in in, in nottingham and ultimately we just became non-exec directors until there was an opportunity in 91 um, for a management buyout, not by by Brian, but by Tom Kirby, who was working at, at, at Workshop, and we agreed to sell out in 1991. Um, he had PE backing to to acquire it. So I wasn't keen to sell all my equity, but the argument says, oh, you've got to sell it all. And so anyway, there was a bit of a, an emotional um, moment at that point but of course workshop then floated two years later and the rest of the say is history fast forward today market cap of around four billion pounds but again yeah. all underpinned on the ip value of warhammer and you can see how workshops rebranded a lot of its major stores to warhammer stores and that's one thing that's rested with me the whole time through the games industry from from not owning dungeon dragons and realizing that you were vulnerable to owning Warhammer, to owning and still owning Fighting Fancy game books. And then through IDOS, when we launched Tomb Raider, Hitman, Championship Manager, Deus Ex, Just Calls, all these were own IP titles because you great, you build greater value in a company and therefore create higher multiples in terms of valuation um, by owning your own IP because you control your own destiny. You're not suddenly vulnerable to somebody else taking that IP away. Plus you get all the incremental revenues from licensing and merchandising of that IP. I mean, you've just, you've just listed, and we, we could add to that, you know, four guys who've made it on it, but you've just listed obviously some huge, huge brands and huge money spinners. And, and I, I, I absolutely hear you on the, the need to own the IP, but what, what do you think has, has honed your skill, I suppose, at being able to identify what's going to be success and what's not? Because, you know, you, you've got the biggest cast list of successes. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there were there are other things that didn't go um, uh, as well, but, but you're the biggest list of successes than anybody I know. So what do you think it is that has enabled you to get behind and invest in and run companies with the sort of brands that you've just just mentioned? Well, <laughs> I guess my, my knowledge is very narrow, but very deep. I, I am self-concessed games geek. I'm sitting in a room here of 1,500 board games, probably 300 video games, and all my yeah. game books. You know, work and play is the same for me. I'm absolute games fanatic, and I tend to think I know what good looks like. Not always, yeah. of course, but I think I've got as much of a handle on what appeals to humans in terms of play as as a lot of people and i say that carried forward when i left idos when it was acquired by square of japan and i became an angel investor and as i said invested in in playdemic the crazy golf crash and also mediatonic who created full guys and the thing about what i look for when i'm investing in 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 game studios both as an angel and now as a partner in Hero Capital. Of course, gameplay is important. When people say to me, what's the three most important things about a game? I will say gameplay, gameplay, gameplay. Technology and graphics, whilst vital, uh, play a supporting role to the gameplay. You'll always buy a game that has amazing gameplay and 
average graphics compared to something that looks great but plays poorly. You want that gameplay experience. So first and foremost for me is the team, the senior leadership team. Right. And Claydemic and Mediatonic are both examples of the the managing director in the case of Paul Googe at Playdemic, as was, and, and Alex Rigby, the creative di- director, on an equal partnership, both enabling each other to do what they're good and best at doing. So it's often the case in creative industries in the UK where sometimes a creative owner does not want to let go of the whole running of the company somehow. It's whether it's fear of loss of control or it's an ego thing, I don't know, but they should be concentrating on creating the content because that's what they do best. And the sometimes some of the um, finance people who in companies want to take control as well, but <laughs> I find that they're more, more wanting to create something successful last year rather than what might be successful next year. But yeah. you have this great equal partnership it, it works well. I mean, Playdermic, incredible example of golf clash, uh, mobile game, free at the point of delivery, um, generating at its high point some $200 million top line revenue, $100 million EBIT, 80 people based in Wilmslow, generating that kind of uh, revenue is extraordinary. I don't know any other industry that that can happen. And ultimately, the company was sold for $1.3 billion to to Electronic Arts. Uh, yeah. Similarly, with, with Fall Guys from Mediatonic, sold to Epic for some $600, $700 million. And there are lots of examples where video games companies generate extraordinary revenues with very little staff. And and are often sold. And one of the things I find <clears throat> a little bit sad about the UK market is that I could say to you, what is the common denominator between Grand Theft Auto, Tomb Raider, Football Manager, Fall Guys, Golf Clash, and several others? And that common denominator is that they're all foreign owned. Yeah. And whilst we're great as a country in creating content we've over always over delivered in content creation because we are a very creative nation we've always been underserved by capital and you've seen some of these major worth sometimes billions of dollars being owned foreigner now the government might say and some people might say that that's great because it secures inward investment uh, it secures employment but if the profits are being banked overseas What's the point of being a work for hire nation if you're such a creative nation? I'm glad you mentioned capital because um, I think when you and I first met, you were chairman of Sumo. Obviously, it's, it's been taken up by by Tencent. Um, I, I definitely want to come on to um, Hero Capital. I think also when you, you you and I first met, I don't think Codemasters had been listed. It's been listed. It's private again. So my point is, you've you've straddled both private and public markets, uh, and 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 seen you know being active in both and you've seen companies list but you it's still a frustration of yours that the capital in the UK is not necessarily always there at the right valuation for the games industry is that is that fair I don't want to put words into your mouth I think it's getting better um yeah. and I, I don't always blame the capital because whilst they don't know what good looks like often 
and they might have different uh, criteria for investing. The games makers are not always being good at presenting to the capital. Yeah. I mean, my case in point, talking to that bank manager back in 1975, all we had was a, a enthusiasm and what we thought was an amazing game there's no genuine business case for them to invest but i think that's getting better but i think we could still the industry can still up its game no pun intended in getting the business side of it better in better shape but also at the same time i'd like the investment community to get to have better understanding of what good looks like and the potential for scale um, to global markets with this IP because the risk profile has changed enormously. When we were shipping Tomb Raider and Hitman in boxes in the 1990s, it's a very risky business. You had to upfront all the development capital, upfront all the marketing costs, navigate the distribution channel, getting cast past the gatekeepers of distribution, ultimately to reach a retail shelf in the hope that a consumer would take it from the shelf and buy it. But if, in the meantime, if the reviews hadn't been as good as you were hoping, um, a lot of that, that those boxes would come back as returned inventory and impact on cash flow and profitability. Whereas fast forward to today, you're now it's now a direct business to consumer proposition addressing a a market which is global on whatever digital platform you choose, whether it's smartphone, digital console, PC, VR, AR, whatever, you can upsell content over time. There's no gatekeepers at the point of delivery. And then if you know how to do the, the supply side and understand the lifetime value and acquisition, retention and monetization of users, you can build a golf class, you can build a fall guys. So yeah. that the price profile has changed dramatically. Ian, we should, we should definitely get on to Hero and what good looks like. Can I ask, just listen to you speak there. Um, is it still a kind of blockbuster or bust type market or has the advent of technology enabled a sort of longer tail of perhaps less well-known titles, perhaps less uh, revenue generating titles to to su- succeed or is it actually still a case of uh, trying to put all your money on black or all your money on, on red and, and it's blockbuster or, or, or nothing in your view? Well I think in this current market um, there's been a bit more spending on the blockbusters kind of not roast duck and no dinner but um, more money going on to what people think is the best of, of the best yeah but as an industry itself because it's games as a service now not on a sh- shelf in a shop for two months and then gone games like candy crush and clash of clans have been around for 10 years yeah so there is an enormous long tail and there's always an opportunity for innovation and quality to succeed in this market because let's not forget there are three billion gamers out there growing at some 10 million a week it's a 250 billion dollar a year market and it speaks to to generation z they want everything to be interactive they enjoy the not just playing together that they they enter and you only have to see the the big media giants now entering this space with meta and amazon and netflix and tencent and disney 
who all want a piece of the gaming action now to see there's been a quantum shift in what children particularly and young adults and even older adults want as their entertainment platform today. It's interactive entertainment, whether that's still playing Warhammer or still reading Final Fantasy game books or playing video games. It's the interactivity that gives them agency of being part of something where they have a say in it rather than being just a, a passive recipient of linear entertainment. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand that. And um, just on Heroes, worth you know elaborating how it came to pass, what it is. Uh, we're speaking to Cherry um, in a few weeks' time, but I think it yeah. would be interested in your perspective as to why it was set up. And also within that, obviously your perspective of what, what, what you're looking for, what the most excites you about, um, I guess, technology, technological change. Um, yeah. So a, a little bit of background on Hero and also the things that excite you would be really interesting, I think. Okay, um, delighted. Uh, well, the, the three partners, uh, founding partners in Hero Capital, Luke Alvarez, Cherry Freeman and myself, Luke and Cherry are you know, the smart ones. They're both Cambridge first. They do all the, all the all the tricky stuff I can't do. I'm just the games geek in, in, in the crew. But um, I met Luke Alvarez in China. We were part of a team that went out with George Osborne at the time and uh, Duke of Cambridge as promoting um, the great campaign. I was talking on behalf of the games industry and, and Luke was on talking on behalf of technology. And um, we were both entrepreneurs, as as is as is Cherry, and had some exits in and being associated with several um, unicorns. And we had this common interest of of, of um, entrepreneurial endeavor and, and success. And it's like 2014 when I first met Luke, and um, I think it was 2017, 18, he contacted me and said he just exited um, from his company um, and said, would I be interested in, <clears throat> in uh, getting involved in, in a fund? And I was having pretty good success and fun as an angel investor, realizing sadly that I was told to run anything anymore, but still wanted to have an input beyond just money in, in getting involved with companies. So the three of us um, set up Hero Capital, um, which we did really successfully for a first time fund. We raised 150 million euros. Um, which was, I'm told, pretty good in our space uh, for a first-time fund. And we've been investing ever since, not just in, in game studios, but connected fitness and wellness, esports and teams, anything to do with um, you know, game studios and technology, sports, streaming, creative platforms, uh, digital sports and, and gamified fitness and not just digital we have invested in, in physical as well case in point in, in is car which is invested in hero 2 which is a an, an insole for a ski boot um, which speaks to your mobile phone giving you date translating data and how you're performing skiing and then you get real-time feedback in your ear pods about what you should do to improve your your skiing in real time so for the cost of you know and a ski instructor for for an hour or two you can get a whole subscription for a year which is aggregating millions of data points from from skiing so anything that throws off data that can be monetized we're interested in but you know marvelously my heart and soul is on a personal level is in in the game studios and the content that we invest in so I'm, I've got loads of questions. Obviously, I mean, the, the trouble is with all these times we run out of 
with all these things, we run out of time. But it, it, to get your perspective of um, current developments. So in, in no particular order, we've talked about whether, you know, you think it's a blockbuster or bust market. You say there's still a long tail. Do you think consumers are, will still, however, save up and save up and save all their money for the big blockbuster titles? Or do you think that that, can, that market can get a little bit more fragmented? Um, or, or, or as time gets times get harder, will people just gravitate towards saving up for the bigger titles? No, I think I think they'll try and do as much as they can. I mean, every time the thing about the game industry is that technology adds opportunity and some challenges to a growing market. It's all additive. So if you look at the music industry, every new platform that comes along is substitutional. Yes. Albums, they're replaced by cassette tapes, which were replaced by CDs, which are now replaced by streaming. And so the market doesn't particularly grow as such, it gets substituted. Whereas with games, there was PCs, then along come consoles, and Apple sees the opportunity with the iPhone, and hey presto with touch technologies and swiping across the touchscreen. Um, suddenly a whole new market is opened up to mass market entertainment for casual games all conveniently located in, in the App Store. Then AR comes along and VR comes along, now the metaverse um, and community worlds built in, in, online where people hang out, play, transact. And so it constantly grows and evolves. Just saw the announcement yesterday about Apple iPhone 15. Yes has got such an amazing CPU and, and technology inside of that AAA games that were always on on consoles and PCs are now going to be able to play it on, on, on the new iPhone. So there's always something that builds the market. But to your point about, is it just about the big titles? The big titles will all succeed. I mean, we've seen recently Baldur's Gate 3, we've seen mm-hmm. the fanaticism around Starfield, but people are still going to want buy new stuff just because you like a certain genre of film doesn't mean to say you're not going to look at other films and so there's people are always excited about what's going to people playing next where should they hang out and over time the game industry will continue to grow because also as a business and the government needs to recognize this more in the post-pandemic world during which by the way no games companies were fur- furloughed because they were created digitally and they were consumed digitally yes. In the new economy, they tick, the, the industry ticks all the right boxes for the digital economy. It's green, high tech, high skills, intellectual property creating, an instant export story on whatever digital platform you launch to the world on. 90% day one revenue is from overseas. Um, it's regional. They don't have to be in London to have a successful games company. Yeah. And despite the economic headwinds, you'll see continual growth in the game industry because, I say, it speaks to Generation Z and Generation Alpha. Totally. On the can I ask on the on the techno while we're on the technology, you know, evolution, can I ask the AI question? Is it an opportunity because it gives developers um, opportunity to use new technology to to be more creative? Is it a threat? But what, what's your view? And, I, and that's you, you, you know. I, AI is one of those things where there's an awful lot of hype, but actually there's still something very 
it feels to me like there's a real change going on. So what yeah. is your view, especially through the lens of uh, vehicles like Hero? I, I think, I mean, it's got to go through the wash yet, and I'm sure lawyers yeah. are going to be very much involved in, in the questions around IP, ownership and infringement. Yes. But just parking that for a second, what does it mean to a game studio? I think it means that a lot of, I don't want to call it grunt work, but work that doesn't need any particular creativity or can be done uh, in a much more easier way is going to be done by AI. For example, you could write not the script, but a lot of the surrounding um, text and 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 literary content inside a game using AI, you can have a lot of the, not the main artwork or character artwork, but a lot of the supporting rendering and, and, and say, just generalist stuff can be done by AI. Rather than having to have a team of 20 artists, you might have 10 artists doing that and then others doing um, editing and refinement of AI control stuff. So it is going to be transformational, um, but I don't want to comment too much about the ultimate impact on AI because it just really is just too early and we have to see what government and and lawyers have to say for it ultimately. But I think the industry thinks overall right now is a good thing. And you, you mentioned some really big names just now, and not in terms of games brands, but, you know, the, the Microsofts of this world, the Xbox, you know, platforms. You know, one thing we have seen is just coming back to the different economic business models. We have seen um, a lot of the subscription um, services put big money up for sort of third party titles. And my, my people tell me that the amount of money they put up for those titles is perhaps diminishing a bit now. What, that, that's obviously quite a change in the revenue model back to when you were starting to invest in the industry, you know, several decades ago. Where do you think that will, that the overall trend in that is going to be in terms of these platforms putting up money for third party titles and the, the evolution of where the purchasing power is? Well, I think people, platformers have always wanted to try and get a monopoly on some yeah. some titles. I remember when we launched Tomb Raider, Sony made us a very substantial offer for exclusivity on on PlayStation. It was limited time only. And that was probably a great benefit to us because not only did they give us the money, they gave us the the marketing power behind it as well. And then hardware companies understand that software sells hardware, hardware doesn't sell itself. So there's always going to be a battle and therefore... There's always going to be a competitive edge trying to get content that the world wants onto certain platforms. But if it, the work, the content is that good, it doesn't need to be signed exclusively away. And some some developers are happy to be given an advance to appear on whatever platform they choose, whether it's PlayStation or Xbox, Epic Store or whatever. Okay. And I'm very conscious of your time, but, you know, there you are, you know, career in the industry, your enthusiasm, you know, leaps out at, at, at everybody. I remember I remember you and I going for lunch and you asking for the Wi-Fi code so you could show me the game that was on your, your mobile phone at the time. Um, so there you are with probably more experience in the sector than, than most people that I, I, I know. 
and visibility of what's new and exciting through uh, the likes of Hero. What are the things that are most exciting to you at the moment? And a swivel unfair question, I know, but what are the things you're most enthused about? It could be games, it could be technologies, it could be changes in in consumer behavior. But what's what's getting you excited at the moment? I think what's exciting me most recently, I think, is that at long last, after like nearly 50 years of wearing a tin hat, that games are in danger of becoming socially acceptable. <laughs> there's been a there's no rabid headlines anymore when a game comes out, and that's really gratifying after all this time. And you know, we are humans. We play is natural. When we come in this world, we learn, and through play, we have social interaction. We enjoy this social experience of, of play and that you don't have to start playing when you get to certain ages. It's OK, folks, to carry on playing. You know, I'm 73 now and I'll never stop playing. You know, life is a game for me. And so I think that's perhaps the most gratifying thing. And secondly, I have to say that I've really enjoyed being part of the hero team because not just the team itself, but all the companies we're now seeing and we don't yes. just add money, we add as much value in terms of expertise, leveraging all the mistakes that we've made over our own lives and, and offering our portfolio companies as much advice or help as they need or want. And working with lots of teams at once has, has been really gratifying and um, long may it continue. That feels like a really good, look, I, I, I can talk to you for hours, but I, I'm very conscious of your time. That feels like a very good place to stop. Look, for now, Ian, Thank you so much for sharing the time with us. I really, really appreciate it. And I hope to catch up in person with you soon. My pleasure. Thank you.